for those who don't know who I am, my name is Baba Lotekiso, and I have the awesome privilege of leading this community here called Following Jesus. Yeah, it's a privilege to come and share with you tonight. And uh, so I'm from Fountain Vineyard in Paul Elizabeth. Uh, we're in our 36th year at that church, uh, having had nine years in Methodism before that. And uh, then we moved. The guy who helped me plant Fountain Vineyard, actually, I had a celebrate. He died just a few days ago. And he's 67 years of age. He's too young, huh? And uh, we, we had a celebration of his life just yesterday, a huge event. Um, and he helped me uh, in... 36 years ago now, 40 years ago, I led him to the Lord and discipled him. And so, yeah, we're in changing seasons, eh? Nice to have David Skivington with me, this young man that you just met a few moments ago. Uh, he was here. Yeah? Oh, is he going out there? <laughs> toilet break. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, um, I'm married to Colleen. Um, she's what I call the jewel of the Karoo. She's a sheep farmer's daughter. And uh, I, I need to just say, uh, being a multicultural community here, that uh, her, father in law, her father, when I asked her for the hand of his daughter in marriage, he said, I know you ministers, you don't know, how are you going to provide for my daughter? You're going to make her poor. So I said, well, how can I convince you? He said, well, I'll tell you what, she has a plan. Take out some endowment policies for my daughter, seed them to her and pay them off. So I took out two policies, one for 25 years and one for 45 years. And the one cost me six rand ten a month, the other cost me five rand sixty-two a month. So after twenty-five years, she got the payout of uh, six rand ten a month, coming to like I don't know forty thousand rand or something. So she took a friend on an overseas trip <laughs> with her labola money. Hey, <laughs> I thought you might take me, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, so she said she can't wait. We're coming up for the forty-five, not long from now, and she's already making plans. <laughs> But uh, she says she's cheap. I mean, she only costs you 562 a month, you know. So. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's been a privilege to be part of Fountain Vineyard. And I, I need to say um, right up front, I'm just going to put it out. Right I'm talking to you tonight and sharing with you and exploring with you the power of community. It's a subject that is very dear to my heart, accentuated or accelerated into my, my life experience by... Um, uh, a number of things, but experience of the Holy Spirit back in 1973 with the Jesus people. God gave me love for his word and for community. It just came. Um, and then accelerated nine years later when my dad committed suicide um, as a Methodist minister. And the trauma of that whole thing, everything that surrounded it, highlighted for me the need for us to do church in ways other than crowd pulling. You know, you can rent a crowd, but you've got to raise a family, huh? And it takes time, it takes sacrifice, it takes patience, uh, it takes uh, believing in each other, caring for each other, and a number of other things which we're going to explore tonight. But one thing, I'll tell you a little bit about that experience as to why it was so important to me. Um, I, I, I knew that he was in depression and, and we'd gone mountain climbing together. I tried to get him to talk. He said, I don't have words for feelings. Uh, you know, he was on that Second World War generation which, where men don't cry. You know, they just stuff it. And... Um, and then about uh, 10 days later, nine days later, I phoned him. I was in the Winterberg Methodist circuit looking off that mountain circuit. He was in the Makanda or Gramsign circuit and uh, had an idea that I said, Dad, uh, on the phone, I said, Julie, uh, one of the issues in your life is just uh, the work pressure. He said, after he died, they replaced him with six full-time workers to give you some idea of what he carried. 
So I said to him, surely one of the issues is just the workload. How about, how about um, you know, I'm in the country, a little town, Fort Beaufort. I can take over the youth work, your student chap- chaplaincy, and even military chaplaincy of 6SI because I've been a military chaplain. And um, he was so excited, so excited. And the next night, he killed himself. So you can imagine the turmoil and the betrayal and all that went with that grief. But um, when my mom phoned and said he was, he was missing and, uh, and I started looking for him and got friends, uh, only the next day, we searched right through the night, the next day with the help of a plane, they located the car in the bush and uh, radioed the position to me. And I raced through there and, and uh, found that he'd, he'd gassed himself. And the car was still running. It was locked on the back seat. And I stood back to kick the window in to reach him. And in that moment... Uh, had, I'm sure some of you have had those Kairos moments when you know God just speaks. And he said, just as you're kicking in this window to bring reality to, to an unreal situation that should never be, so I'm calling you to do life and to do church and to do ministry like that as well. Um, I don't really fully understand it, except there was an anger in me that someone should, should do that. Because uh, when I was looking for him, I got hold of his appointments book, spoke to 10 people he'd seen that day. And they all said he served them amazingly. Now, how do you come back from 10 pastoral visits and then kill yourself? How, do you, how does this work out? Uh, and then, as I try to make sense of this in the, in the weeks to come, I read in his journal how in his younger years he longed for someone to ask him how he really was. Uh, but no one ever did, because his mother had died, and, uh, and he was being raised by a stepmother who didn't have a time of day for him. And he said, uh, I've learned to wear a mask this is what he, what he wrote in his journal. I learned to wear a mask and long for death. Uh, and then I knew that God is asking me to, to do things differently, to be impatient with mask wearing and pretense, and to do church in, in radical, vulnerable, transparent, authentic ways. And that's why I want to share with you. I just felt it like it was in God's heart for us to spend some time exploring what, what it would mean for us to do church with the power of community, um, and, and not just organizational church, not just... Uh, all that, and there's, there's probably more to say about that, but you know how God awakens us to things through crisis experiences we go through. Hey? Um, so I've given you an outline of what I'm going to share. You can jot anything down you want to, or just listen. But uh, going to, uh, and I've got a couple of fuller manuscripts here for those. Who, who, for some of you who like it, I can leave a couple of copies with you. But uh, didn't want you to be too cluttered up with information, so rather just listen and let it wash over you. So in order for us to do church as community, we need to get in touch with the fact that we have three basic needs, all of us. We need to feel we're of worth. We, 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 we are valued, that your life counts. So the, the, the need to be, to, to know who you are, to be. The second one is the need to belong. We need to be connecting to others. It's um, what we learned through Ubuntu, huh? a person is a person through other people. No man is an island unto himself. We need our humanity is established in our connectivity. It's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, it's not good for mankind to be alone. We we need connection. Uh, you know, and and just being in a crowd. I, I think of um, uh, Crocodile Dundee. Remember that movie? <laughs> One day he finds himself in New York, and and someone tells him there's uh, 14 million people or something in New York. He says, "Wow, must be a mighty friendly place." <laughs> and he found out that you can be lonely in a crowd, hey? So just because you got a big church or a crowd of people doesn't mean people uh, are connected. 
it's quite important for us to figure this out, the belonging thing. We need to belong. And thirdly, we need a purpose. We need a, 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 a sense of purpose and direction and the capacity to fulfill it. Uh, be, belong, and do, if you like. Three great needs that we all have. And in some measure, um, some of these things correlate, but uh, the second thing is that we need to understand that being saved has at least these three tenses to it. When we accept Jesus into our lives, um, what he did on the cross becomes effective for us, right? We, we understand that uh, we are justified by faith in what he did. The blood of Christ applied to us gives us a Passover from death to life. Um, so we, we were saved. Uh, and if I went around the room, I'm sure some of you have been saved more than a few months, a few years, a few decades. How many have been saved for more than 30 years? Oh, look at you. Wow. And I could, I'm sure, get a couple of hands running up to 50 years, eh? How many saved 50 years? We could auction that right here. <laughs> uh, so uh, we were saved when we first accepted Christ. I got saved on the 20, uh, 28th of March, 1968, at 4.30 in a Thursday afternoon at Kayser's Beach in the Eastern Cape. I, it was a moment when I, my, the lights went on and I said yes to Jesus. And I just knew something had changed. I'd been trans translated from darkness to light. It was my own Damascus road. And uh, the second thing is that we, and so because of that past tense, we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. Past tense. Present tense, our present tense salvation is that uh, we are being saved by the love of God. As faith helped us on the first tense, love helps us on the second one. For the theological ones amongst us, this is called sanctification. Justification, now sanctification, being made into his likeness. We are being changed. How many found out that when you got saved, it just began? You weren't instantly holy, right? How many still think you've got some more holiness to learn? <laughs> still on the road. I think we need to have t-shirts in the vineyard. All of us need to wear t-shirts saying, Christians under construction. <clears throat> We're still very much on the road, eh? So, and the more we access the love of God, hey, the more secure we are and the more easily we relate to others. Funny thing, I had an experience back in, I think it was 93, uh, still unpacking and processing some of the leftovers of my dad's issues. Um, and uh, I was with some friends in Tennessee and, and I, I, I felt the Lord say to me, in fact, I'll tell you how it happened. I was having a meal with them in this restaurant and um, some, one of the kids went over the jukebox and chose a, a tune. You put in a coin and choose a tune. And, and they played Achy Breaky Heart. You know, they, you remember that? And, and I thought the Lord said, just come and walk with me by the river. So I went outside, walked down by the Tennessee River, big, big river, bigger than anything we got here in Africa. And, um, and then the Lord said, we put your hand in this river and stop the water. It's clear as day. I just had this impression. So I tried to stop the water, but of course it didn't stop. I, I did look around first, make sure nobody was watching. <laughs> Anyway, and the water didn't stop. And in that moment, I suddenly saw it. The Lord said to me, just as there's nothing you can do to stop this river, there's nothing you can do to stop me loving you. And the lights of his, the revelation of his sovereignty just went on for me, his love. He says, my love is my choice. He says, there's, not, uh, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more or less. My love for you is my choice. All you can do is accept it or reject it, but it's not going to change. I love you. It was so releasing. I, I prayed. I said in that moment, I said, Lord, teach me to live from this revelation. And God began to refather me. In the unpacking of all that, I found out that uh, my four, four bears, had all, for four generations back, had all had mother abandonment in infancy. 
It's a strange thing that it come down the line and culminated with my dad, and each of them tried to resolve in different ways. One forefather became a North Sea fisherman up to live 11 months at sea, so he wouldn't have to connect to anybody. Without the connection, you see, there's just that, that sense of isolation, and you, it's too difficult. Uh, and they all did different things. My dad took his pain to the ministry, thinking if I could, if I could heal the wounds of others, maybe my own wounds would go away. Hey? Yeah. And, and of course it didn't. And so I, I was left asking the question, what am I going to do with mine? And that's when I realized I could stop the rot. I could change it for the generations to come. So I prayed a very simple prayer. I said, Father, teach me to, be, to live from this revelation, to be refathered by you. And the re- rediscovery of the fatherhood of God began to break over my life. And I've never looked back. And uh, the amazing thing about that, everybody around me became easy to get on with. <laughs> this is a wonderful thing. Eh? <laughs> All our fears and insecurities is actually what bedevils our relationships, eh? So we need that second tense of salvation, ongoingly opening to the love of God. And um, a third one, of course, is the future. When he comes, and he's coming back, the rider on the white horse is coming back, and he will receive us and complete what, is, what he has begun in us. He'll bring it to completion, eh? In the moment when we see him, we'll be changed to be like him, for we shall know him as he is. It's an amazing thing, this glorification on his return. But we are living in the present. We're living between the, 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 the past and the future tense here. But we have a hope for the future. So it's important for us to keep our, our, our eyes on that as we think about how we do church. And we're all actually in process. So therefore, <clears throat> I'm to make a statement here about membership in, in, a, in a community-oriented church that serves the kingdom. Is that we will know membership to be grace-based. Anyone can be a member in a, in, in a vineyard church. Anyone who is hungry to know the Lord. This is not for people who've, re- who've reached a certain level of perfection or anything like this. Is, this is an, an open invitation. Uh, and some people don't like that. They prefer people to have a measure of rightness. And, and people still get shocked every so often. We went through seasons. We had a number of people in our church in the early years when people smoked a lot still. And we had guys coming. So I'd, I'd love to come to church, but I can't sit through an hour without a smoke. So we had, we had a smoke break in the middle. We, we announced a smoke break, five-minute smoke break, going tank up, and then uh, we carry on again afterwards. And it helped some people because they could hear the gospel better. Eh? They weren't sitting there uh, going on about their smokes. But my point I want to make is that whatever the issues have been over the years, but uh, membership is by grace, but leadership is by faithfulness. So we're asking of a new level for leadership. Uh, you, you need to prove, you need to establish, you need to be on the journey. That's not to say leaders uh, can't struggle and have failures and things and difficulties, but hey, they need to be committed in a direction. Whereas um, members are, are there just to hear the gospel for a start. So as, we, as we've um, un, 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 uh, unpacked some of this, we've realized that we need to think about how we structure membership. And... Um, there are three types of, of membership, three sets, if we can call them that. The first is, <clears throat> and this is the most common one, a bounded set, where a church decides and dis- uh, a description of what their membership would look like. And if you comply, you're in, and you can be received into membership. If you don't comply, you're out. So there's a, a very distinct boundary. It's a, called a bounded set. And uh, the problem with that is that a bounded set um, may help you to think you've got a defined membership, but the reality is, are they walking in what they profess? And you can very easily end up with a nominal membership. I remember my last years in Methodism, uh, I was part of a, on a staff with a, a, a huge 
in that city, a huge church of about 1,300 members. And um, I kept saying only 100 of those people were actually involved in the life of the church. And I kept wanting the leadership to redefine the membership by the involvement. Um, and of course, they were not keen to do that because it didn't reflect good on the statistics. Um, but so what we've done with the bounded set, we, we said there's got to be another way. So what some have gone and done is they've thrown away the boundary and, and left it open like a phantom thing. And I remember years ago, there were those that believed the church should be so spirit-led that uh, we wouldn't even need any structures. Uh, that, in fact, one friend, he, he tried to run a church like a phantom church where everybody uh, would do whatever the spirit led them to do. And if they felt led to come together on a particular day at a particular place, they might perhaps have a meeting if the Spirit led them to have a meeting. If they felt led to go surfing, well, it was down the coast, uh, whatever. Everybody just did what they felt led to do, so you could really say it was Spirit-led. But of course what they overlooked is the, the gift of leadership and good governance and administration. And sometimes we need collaboration with each other, Spirit-led collaboration, so we can meet like Pubs said we're going to meet thus and so and finish at nine. Is that right? <laughs> As the Spirit leads. Is that right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the absence of, 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 uh, of a boundary wasn't good enough for us. So we, in the vineyard, we've opted for a third set. We said, let's set a center and allow people to be on a journey, uh, wherever they might be, in, in an authentic engagement towards the center. And the center is essentially Jesus. And his kingdom claims on our lives. We were just talking to the leaders. In fact, it's the only thing in theology that should be at the center, actually, is Christology. The nature, person, and work of Christ. It's the only realm of theology on which we need complete agreement to be able to process what it means to be the church. Didn't Jesus say, on this rock I'll build my church? And he was commenting on Peter's confession of faith, on Peter's confession of Christology, of who Jesus is. Huh? And... Um, no foundation, no other foundation can any man lay that, than that which is laid, even Christ Jesus. So he's the center. Here's the, 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 the great thing about a centered set is people can be different place in relation to that center because we, the issue is not what's your position, but what's your direction. That's very helpful. So we allow space for people to journey. And those that are still needing a smoke break, let them take their smoke break, eh? We've got a gay couple in our church, and some people said, how can you have a gay couple in your church? I said, well, where else are they going to hear the gospel that will empower them to come to healing? And, you, you, and also, why single out one particular level and expression of brokenness? There are many brokennesses all around us. And so what we want to do is create such a safe place in the, in the church where we can be welcoming, though not affirming of, of, the, of the sin and brokenness, but so welcoming that the gospel is safely received. Just like the anesthetist and the surgeon need to work together. Listen, if you go to hospital and the only person who arrives is the anesthetist, all you're going to get is a long sleep. <laughs> On the other hand, if the only person who arrives is the, is the surgeon, you better get up and run out of there because it's not going to be a pleasant experience. You need both. So we need grace and truth that came by Jesus Christ. Eh? And the sentence that helps us to, to understand that just, uh, just a little better. <clears throat> like I say... Uh, you, you've got to think about uh, the contrast between uh, crowd and, and family. And essentially, the, the raising of a family is, is, is what's going to cost you much. It's going to cost you relationship. It's going to cost you transparency, vulnerability. I found out as a father, having made many times mistakes and sometimes being preoccupied, um, 
sometimes physically present but emotionally absent. Anybody relate to that? Those that didn't nod are probably there right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we, uh, and we can wound the people around us because we, we, we're not giving them the eye of our relationship. We, 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 we just it to each other. We rather than connecting authentically. And being family requires our, our vulnerability, our honesty, our, our, our apology. And you know, I found out that both in family and in church, that apology never robs us of authority. In fact, it establishes authority. When we screw up, own it. Bring it forward. People will trust you more than, than that you should love your own opinion more than the truth. Eh? So it's very important for us to, to explore what it's going to mean to raise a family rather than just rent a crowd. Um, and churches that focus on being crowd, it's, much, it's a whole lot about uh, publicity and advertising and, and, and all the things that, that rent crowds, that pull crowds in. Um, one of the things I celebrate about the vineyard is the number of, I was saying to some of the leaders this, this morning, a number of celebrity people that have gotten saved and have found ho- good homes in vineyard churches that we don't even, we don't name them, we don't declare them because we don't want them um, to, to be celebrities in the church, but to be brothers and sisters. And it's so important, eh? Uh, because we're not try- into crowd pulling. We're not into, into all of those things. And I mean, if you want to use a smoke machine and light machines and all those things, by all means. But, but be sure that it's Jesus who's the attractive one. Huh? And, and build around about the church being a family. And one of the things that that's going to mean for you, you'll measure church <clears throat> not by just how many seats are filled, but by how many people are related. How are we connecting to each other? Huh? Uh and I don't think that a big crowd is necessarily a big church. It might be called church, but not everything that's called church is church. Because by Jesus' definition, it's the love we have for one another that shows us to be his disciples. And love must be seen in relationship. So it's, it's not in attending something, it's in connecting to some, someone that we find church. Eh? So we need to be exploring more and more um, of how to do church in relational ways so that we can be a family and not just um, not a superstar-focused kind of crowd. And that's the thing about crowd. You, you want the superstar guys to be on the platform. And it's all about, uh, and we've been celebrating that in Fountain, where um, we try and give away ministry all the time. Right now I'm giving away the preaching ministry. We're about, I think, about 30 trainee preachers in Fountain right now, Fountain Vineyard. And, and so I, I've just run three weeks now. And I won't probably preach here for at least another two months or so. Uh, and so many others. And the amazing thing about it, they are doing so well. The church is growing under their ministry. And when I go away, they grow even more. So it's so quite encouragement for me to stay away, you know. But it's about... Um, it's about receiving what we can from each other and giving what we can as we serve one another um, rather than just trying to be uh, program-orientated. Hey? Um, the other thing about family versus crowd as we do church is, is the fact that we've, we would lead like fathers, not like kings. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of the ways that that is expressed is when we need to bring discipline or correction to somebody's life to to member the church, we never do that publicly. Because you want to save people's dignity, just like in a family. You would discipline privately, but praise publicly. Whereas in a crowd-orientated thing, they want to make the church look good and publicly be known to be those who are casting out this evil person. I had a colleague, a guy who became a colleague, um, 
It's uh, you might have heard Ricky, Ricky Fenter, who now leads the international vineyard in Brussels in Belgium. Uh, but uh, I had this. His wife came to us years ago, and uh, her and her, her mother would come to our church, and uh, I didn't know them. And for and for for weeks, for, for about I think two years or something, she would um, just come forward for ministry time and again for this broken husband of hers who'd been abused in church. And uh, eventually, Ricky. It's a long story short, but he, he decided to come to Fountain Vineyard just to come and try it out. And he came on a day when we were exercising uh, a very sensitive situation, but with all the grace God had given us. Now, I didn't know at that time that Ricky had been burnt because of an experience of a, of a public rebuke about a sexual issue for, for a loved one that he knew. And that she was being named and shamed from the pulpit. It so freaked him out. He said, I'll never go to church again until one day he came. And he came on the very day we were having to handle a very, very painful uh, situation on our leadership in the church. But with such grace and humility that the damage was minimized. And he, he said, and he never missed again. Uh, he came on staff and nine years later he's now leading this international vineyard in, in, in Brussels. I want to say, God help us to be, to be gracious in how we bring correction to the broken lives around us eh? we're living with broken humanity and families are are very committed to doing this well hey bob mumford talks about this as uh, the worthwhileness of incompatibility hey? sometimes we find ourselves in as we are in our families different from each other and we and we need we need um we need to uh, to work with our differences to enrich us and, and not to see our, and you guys are doing so well with that, your diversity at, at uh, following Jesus. Uh, the diversity, the differences are a gift. It's a wonderful gift. This is a, a, a hugely gifted church to, to receive those, not as a threat, but as a gift to grow us, eh? to bless us. And um, one of my early friends and mentors was a guy called Gerald Coates. Some of you might remember Gerald Coates from the UK. And uh, he talked about the playboy philosophy in church membership. And this is what he said. He says, it, it says this, get what you can from a fellowship. When you've drained it dry and it can give you no more, move on. If a church gets too hot, drop it. If people dislike you, clear off. Never get too involved. Never get hurt. Run your life the way you want it run and use your friends to satisfy your needs. How many churches don't do that, eh? Wow, wow. So in contrast to that, Paul writes this letter to the church in Galatia. And he gives them six signs that they will be getting it right. Six marks of community. This, you'll know the gospel is having an effect positively. Your church is getting healthy when these six things are happening. Let me just give them to you very, very quickly. We won't elaborate, but in Galatians chapter 5, you can read that whole chapter for homework, eh? And he, he talks about freedom. For, Christ, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So that's the first mark, that we are, we are devoid of legalism and religion. We, are, we come with reality, and we come to connect, and we're not into religious um, grandstanding. And, of course, also manipulation and shame-based leadership. Secondly, he says, uh, don't, don't use your, your freedom to indulge a sinful nature, eh? but to love one another. Let love be your guide. So, you know, that, that tangible care that you have for one another is another thing he's saying here about a mark of a healthy church, that we're serving one another in love, and it's, church is a safe place for all kinds of people to run to. 
Then he also talks about uh, the leading of the Spirit, the openness to the Spirit. Number three, as a, as a sign that the church is healthy, you listen to the Spirit, the, the space for the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, in our lifestyles, we, we, we follow the prompting of the Spirit. And, and even if that violates protocol or the norms around us, well, how many remember Lonnie Frisbee? Whenever I think of violating the norms, I think of Lonnie Frisbee, you know, jumping up, doing the absurd thing just to shatter any religious spirit that might be in the house, just to bring us back into a sense of, hey, let's get real with God, hey? And, and then the, the, the fourth one, he, he talks about the, the, in Galatians about the, those who, who've taken on this gospel will die to self, the, the mark of the cross, uh, Dying to self. They've crucified the self. And we live the, the, the crucified life. Um, if we live that life where we, we are servants one of another rather than being served, we seek to serve. And consumerism uh, is not for us. We move on from being consumers to being givers. And then he talks about accountability. And he goes on into chapter, chapter 6 with that. Accountability. Um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, and how each one should carry his own load. So carry what is right to carry for your brother. But at a certain point, be sure that you're not dis, uh, disdaining your brother by entitling him rather than empowering him. So there's an accountability here that's uh, important for us to work out as we seek to do community. And then there's generosity. He says, uh, uh, share all things. In Galatians 6, the last part, um, he is so sparingly or reap sparingly. And he goes on how, uh, guiding us as to how we should exercise our finances. But those would be six marks of, of community. Um, and it's an amazing thing. You just take your Bible, take, just take the New Testament, and flip through and see how many times the phrase one another comes up. How much has to do with how we do life with one another. Love one another. Be patient with one another. Forbearing one another. Greet one another. Uh, caring for one another, etc. Serving one another. All of those things. And learning to express a kind of covenant love to one another. Um, Maybe we can come back to that later. How are we doing, guys? Are you still with me? Yeah. You guys are lively up in Gauteng, eh? Yeah, here we go. Do you want to stretch your legs for a minute? Why don't you stand up? <coughs> yeah, sure. sure. I think when you join a church, believe it or not, because church is like a love affair, eh? It's a divide. It's our communal expression of the divine romance. And when you fall in love, you know you go through these four stages. The honeymoon stage, where it's amazing. The person you're in love with, you're actually probably more in love with being in love than the person because you already know each other, right? But it's an amazing time. It's just perfect. And then you find out something you don't like, and you start going into the conflict stage. Eh? The honeymoon's over, conflict comes on board, and you start seeing the imperfection of the one you... You thought you loved. And you, you, you know, <laughs> I remember when, when Colin and I got married, uh, we, we'd been apart for three years of the three and a half years before we got married. I was studying in Makanda and she was in Cape Town. And so when we decided we were going to get married straight after our final exams and, and, and we were going to have, we had seven weeks honeymoon. Uh, I mean, we're making up for lost time. <laughs> and you know, the thing is that, um, <laughs> We could only afford, I think, three nights in a hotel. The rest were in a tent. So, <laughs> I tell you, why I married the jewel of the crew. <laughs> now you are there, Lauren. 
Yeah. But uh, one time we decided it was raining and we were just tired of being in the tent, so we took a car for a drive. We went up the mountain on a mountain track up there in Hogsback in the mountains. And um, I love off-road driving and stuff, and we I went on a track that only tractors should go on. And uh, we got so hyped on the mountain, eventually with a 16-point turn, I managed to get the car and get out of there. And she confessed to me after. She sat in that car thinking, what have I married? <laughs> she, she had her moment of fright and, and, and challenged the second phase, came on quickly in the honeymoon already, you know. What have I married, you know? Yeah. Anyway, the conflict phase. And then if you work it through and you stay on board and you process it, we, we talk about it. And we have this, we, what, what we call intense fellowship. Huh? Yeah, any of you have that? You've got you to process something and we get into this tunnel of chaos where you talk the thing through. And you allow each other to say things and to feel things that are not easy to be said and felt. But hey, when you do that, you land in a better place on the other side. At least, even if you still disagree, you can, you can disagree amicably. Huh? And that's when you reach the love stage. Now you love each other in spite of what you know. That's a good thing. The same applies to church, by the way. Huh? The same applies to church. I, I think of a guy who came to us some years ago to our church. And we were still in a rented facility, and he loved the meeting. The Spirit was moving. It was a powerful time. And it's total stranger. He said to me after, at the end of the meeting, can I just say something? And I didn't know the guy from a bar of soap. I gave him the mic. And I said, have a, have a go. And, and he said, you know, I, I've come home. I found this is the home I've been looking for all my life. I commit the rest of my life to being a member in this church. We never saw him again. So, I mean, that's <laughs> Somebody said maybe maybe he did give the rest of his life. Maybe he did. I don't I don't know who he was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's that it's that infatuation. Like I told the guys this morning, if you settle for puppy love, you end up with a dog's life. You got to process the issues. You got to go through it, uh, the conflict, and land in, in in that love stage where you love each other in spite of what you know. I think you guys have got to that stage, huh? Huh? Come on. How many of you have been how many of you have found following Jesus a difficult church to belong to at certain times? Look at that. The leaders are <laughs> And how many of you are glad that you stuck it out? Here we go. And you're enjoying the celebration of, of that love stage. There's a fourth stage, the what we call the call stage or the vision stage. Now now you're ready to dream your big dreams and commit to the big projects. In the marriage, this is the time to have your kids. Don't have kids, don't have kids during the conflict stage. Some people think, yes, we're having such fights. It's just another child. Maybe it'll pull us together. How many know the children don't pull you together? Hey? <laughs> and, and big projects don't necessarily pull churches together. Be sure that you're relationally together before you become project-minded together. Hey? Very important. Four stages hey? as you work that out. Okay, so... What this is going to mean for us is that we'll have to, and, and I'm, now I'm just sharing what we found helpful to us. We found it helpful to describe the levels of participation. Just as there are stages, so there are levels. And just three levels. We have visitors who come to us, and I'm sure you have that from time to time. Um, and you have different seasons where there are multiple visitors that come, right? And somehow it seems like if you're faithful with the few, God gives you the more. And so that's important to be very hospitable with the, all the visitors that come. Um, and uh, so we have visitors and, and they come and we serve them uh, like when they come to our homes we invite them in we put them in the lounge and we give them the tea or the coffee or whatever and when they finish we take the cup to the kitchen for them and we do it all for them but you have a second level of what we call friends 
And some people in the church are friends of the church, and they come more regularly. They're more than visitors, because now by now you know their name, and you know a few things about them. They've come a couple of times. And they can usually uh, carry their own cup to the kitchen, if you know what I'm saying, at this stage, uh, at the stage of friends. You can expect more from a friend than a visitor. So with church. So the third stage is the, the, the family member. One is committed to being a member in this church. And what they would commit to, and by the way, then they not only take their cup to the kitchen, they take yours too <laughs> at this stage. They're now a member, they've found a ministry, and they're serving in that capacity. Um, and w- what you'll find in, in, this, uh, in this is that because you've got a vision that God's given you and a, a calling to fulfill as a local church, um, you need to determine the exercises necessary to fulfill that vision. What's it going to look like for you to do that? To fulfill that vision, what would help your people be fit for the vision? So we, we call those not disciplines or rules, we call them exercises. We don't police them in the slightest, but we name them. And we invite and encourage and teach our people to absorb them and applicate them as best they can in their lives. And these are our, mem- these are, and you can work out your own, but these are our exercises. Eh? Um, <coughs> the uh, one would be integrity, um, being honest about yourself. The other is father intimacy, personal pursuit of God on a daily basis. Attendance would be another one. Showing up, you can't, as we always say, you can't build a building with bricks that are not on site. So you need people that actually are present. You don't even want correspondent members. You need people that actually show up. Huh? And then you need tithes and offerings. That's to do with our stewardship, um, our financial giving. And we can talk a bit about that in a moment. But, um, and by the way, we differentiate between tithes and offerings. Tithes is a is a calculated amount based on 10% of what we've received and that everybody can tithe, absolutely everybody, because it's a, maybe just say this up front, a tithe is a way of saying thank you, not please. Some, some people use it as a manipulation of God. We, we use the tithe as an expression of gratitude to God. So it's a, it's a beginning. As you receive something, the very first thing you do is you say thank you for what I've received. Then you, with whatever stewardship God has given you, for the other 90% you exercise that. So that you actually bring the tithe before you can say, I can't afford to. Because you can. It's still there. Does that make sense? And, and, uh, and you don't have to. We don't teach people they have to tithe. We teach that they, they get to tithe. Huh? You don't have to do it because we're not under law. But I'll tell you what. If you follow the Spirit deliberately, you'll fulfill the law accidentally. You pursue the Spirit intentionally, deliberately. You'll find that He will lead you to a life of gratitude. And one of the expressions of that gratitude will be your tithe. So on Sundays, we normally, uh, we normally collect offerings. Some, sometimes be, they can put a tithe envelope in as well. That's fine. But we separate. Offerings are specific. They are where you don't let the left hand know what the right hand is giving. And it's a purpose-specific thing. We say, this offering today is to help so-and-so get a car. Or it's a mercy fund here. Or it's a mission down there. Or it's for the building or something like that. It's purpose-specific. Um, and that's how we individuate that. And then there's outreach. We, we ask every member in the church to make sure they, they know their neighbors and are unsaved people. And they've got some, and they're connecting, staying connected to the broken, hurting world in which we live. We, we must understand our churches are never meant to be monasteries where we are escaping from the world, but engaging with the world. Huh? And we added another one for healing. We want every one of us to be involved in our own healing journeys. So to, that's an invitation to be growing, to be processing. Huh? Um, those, are, those are helpful things for us as we try and train members to, to be fit for the vision. Um, of course, 
one of the outworkings of that, like if you're a, a member of the church, uh, we'll take you on a connect evening and give you introduction or a visions values weekend and you'll be able to be introduced to the life of the church, the values and all that. And then you'll be given an opportunity to be interviewed by one of the pastors or leaders in the church so that there's some personal connection. Um, and then you get, get an opportunity to be introduced. So that happens on a Sunday and uh, we're about to do another group now. I think it's next week. Uh, yeah, and um, and then uh, uh, there's a great celebration of that. So it's a, it's a wonderful time. Um, but of course, we don't keep a membership list. We keep a membership life. Like you don't keep a name, the list of your your family members. Do you know them? Hey, if they're missing, you don't check up who's missing on your list. It's you know them. So likewise with church. So we don't, we're not uh, marking things off. We don't police any of these activities, but uh, we we teach them. We encourage them, and uh, they become increasingly in vogue. Um, and so what you land on, of course, this helps a lot, is when members are seeking to find their ministries. And, uh, um, and the church moves from, from being a field to being a force, where you're equipping every minister, every member to be a minister. It's a priesthood of all believers. That every single one of us could, could be active in, in exercising our gift in some or other way in the life of the church. And... Uh, uh, you know, the 80-20 problem where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people, huh? and it's a recipe for, for burnout uh, and for disillusionment. For those who are sitting around not exercising in ministry, um, they're not actually growing because you know what? You, you grow when you go. So when you're giving away and you, you, you're engaging in, in ministry to others, you, you grow. Huh? So <clears throat> we, we just want to make it clear that the church is meant to be a force uh, of people being trained and equipped to work in the field, which is the world, according to Matthew 13, parable of the sower and the seed. Huh? Uh, the seed is, is the word that goes out into the, into the, the world, the field. And so the, the, the church, we are the carriers of the seed that goes out. We are the force going out into the, the field. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Huh? Yeah. Um, and I, I think of the clown. I'll tell that story again. I just remember the uh, years ago, I saw a circus, and this clown had these poles around the, uh, what do you call it, arena or something? What do you call that? Uh, yeah, the ring. And he, uh, he took a china plate and spun it on top of each pole. And, of course, he had to keep them spinning, so his actions became an absolute blur to keep 30 plates spinning on all these poles. And when I walked out there, I felt the Lord say to me, Dave, just remember, I've called you to be a pastor, not a clown. <laughs> and he said, let every man spin his own plate. Every member, don't do what others are supposed to do. Eh? Make space for others. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's just uh, think about this also. What we want to say is that every, every, every part of the church, every member in the church is needing to have a ministry. And uh, um, this is for all. And the difference between paid staff and members is, my brothers used to say this, say, Dave, you paid to be good, we're just good for nothing. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you don't understand. We, we want to we make, make a church a safe place for all of us to be authentic in our pursuit of stuff in the Lord. We're all growing in this, eh? all of us, all the time. Before they asked me to be ND, 
I don't know if it's because they saw how much I needed it, but they gave, I went through the Enneagram thing, you know, the, some of you know the Enneagram, yeah? And, and uh, they gave me four Enneagram coaches. One wasn't good enough. They needed to work my case. And for a whole year, I had four Enneagram coaches that worked me over, upside down, inside out, uh, figuring, helping me figure myself out how to, how to do life, how to do team, how to do ministry differently, so that I wouldn't damage this movement. Time will tell. <laughs> God help us all. Anyway. <laughs> so I want to make it very clear. Jesus is at the center of the church, not pubs. Not the paid staff. Jesus is at the center. The paid staff are, and any other leadership are there to facilitate, encourage, to train, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to really just emphasize that and to keep doing that. I know you guys are good about this as well, but work with your, your three journeys, your inward journey, Hey, your own soul care. Do you take how many of you take sabbaticals? <laughs> how many want to take a sabbatical? Yeah, come on, you need a sabbatical every week. You need a day off. In fact, you need a, sab- a, a sabbatical moment every day. I knock off at I didn't tell you from two thirty to four thirty every afternoon is my sabbatical, where I don't normally I don't work. I go home for lunch. I chat to my wife, make some tea. We just chill, pet the dog. Whatever. <laughs> Pull another chicken out of the dog's mouth or something. <laughs> There's a story behind that. <laughs> anyway, um, and we need sabbaticals. Every Monday is, is my Sabbath day. You need a sabbatical, hey? And you need a month of every year. And you need a couple of months break every five or six or seven years. We need to do these things, guys. Live sabbatically. I think if you can't take sabbatical, if you t- can't take rest... You're living in denial of the gospel. Because didn't Hebrews 4 describe Jesus? He promises himself in Matthew 11, I've come to give you rest. Hebrews 4 talks about him being our rest. Rest is a, is a synonym for faith. So we're resting in God. Some pastors say, I could never take a day off this. This church wouldn't work. I mean, that's a messianic complex of note. Eh? It doesn't all depend on you. Sometimes we've got to get out of the way. Like I say, I'm finding out fountain does better when I get out of the way. Stranger, I don't really like it sometimes. <laughs> the other thing, they have parties in a while ago. The whole surf goes out for staff, goes out for breakfast, they throw teas. It's amazing. They always tell me about these things later. They never do it when I'm there. Anyway. <laughs> so the inward journey, uh, the, 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 um, the outward journey, huh? discovering your, of your gift, and then, of course, the downward journey, where you, you work with the cultivation of mercy, where you're in touch with with situations of need because it awakens in you the appreciation of God's mercy to you and it keeps us grounded. So I really want to encourage you to think about those three journeys. And then in order to do this, we've got to rethink leadership just for a few moments. Leadership in a community-oriented church, you cannot have it tyrannically. You can't have it on top of the pyramid. Uh, and that's the one model where the leader's on the top. He normally is called reverend or uh, pastor or great prophet or supersonic apostle uh, or something like that on top and he has a preferred parking space and normally has some special attire or something like that Um, and uh, that's a recipe for stagnation of the church so some in reaction turned it upside down and put the leader at the bottom and the people at the top and what that is is a classic democracy and the people then dictate to the leader who thereby becomes no longer a leader but a representative of the wishes of the majority 
because that's what the best of democracy is going to offer you, which is why you sometimes have very diluted sonar in moments, because he's actually still trying to please the, the ones who are on the top, the electorate. If he was truly free to be the leader, not on the top nor at the bottom, but in the front of the arrow here, the point of the arrow, then you, would, you could take the lead prophetically and declare things, whether they're popular or not. So that's what we want to be aiming for, a leadership that leads by virtue of being in the front. I did a, have a talk with some of your leaders earlier about how that works out for us. But there are levels of leaders in the arrow ahead, but there is a point to that, and we believe that in the vineyard. We do believe in the gift of leadership, not as um, maybe some come from an AOG background or someone might be familiar with that uh, plurality of eldership, but even in that, there's a first amongst equals. There is a leadership that, that gives um, strategy to the, the front, to the point. However, that, that leader is defined uh, not so much as a king, but as a father. And he leads like a father. And the difference between leading like a king versus leading like a father is that a father is secure and, and delights in the success of his sons and daughters. Whereas a king is threatened when the subjects become too, too, too effective eh? in case he's going to be overthrown. But a father wants the sons and daughters to rise up. And, and make his job redundant. Yeah. Hey? So, <clears throat> we have to think about how we lead and to, and to do it differently. Hey? Does that make sense? Hey? Yeah. Uh, we can come back to some of that, but just, just to summarize, the, the, the tool that a leader will work with is vision. And in the vineyard, there are four primary pictures of that, of the church. Is, it's a hospital. Broken people can come. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a family where we all learn to relate. It's a school where we, there's training on a multiplicity of life, life issues. Uh, and then there's also an army where we're mandated for mission. And we need to be encouraging our people to be moving through those. And sometimes revisiting the hospital if they get wounded. Hey? And celebrating being family and being retrained if they're getting some things wrong. So we, we go through that sometimes over and again as we grow. Hey? I hope that makes sense to you, eh? And then um, maybe just to, I don't know if there's anything else that's critical for us to follow yet. Um, maybe just healing, healing and deliverance. Let me just touch that just for a few moments and then we can have questions. Um, you know, uh, healing, we, we can have illness in, in different ways. We can be physically broken, physically sick, eh? We can be sick emotionally and psychologically. We can be spiritually sick. How many of you remember reading Francis McNutt on healing? Do you remember Francis McNutt in the charismatic movement? You remember that? Back in the 70s, I guess. And he spoke a lot about these things. Um, and how we need healing in all three of those. If we, um, if we, if we want to and, and minister them at all three levels as well. So oftentimes in the vineyards, our ministry times have made up with, with healings of a multiplicity of expressions. It's not just one or the other. It's all of those. Um, and um, uh, healing of the Spirit can only be, sickness of the Spirit can only be healed um, by repentance. There's no other answer to it. You've got to repent. You can't explain it away. You can't medicate it. You can medicate some of the, uh, the effects of it, but it's not going to really help. The only way to get rid of uh, that alienation from God, the sickness of the Spirit, is by repentance. And He gives His grace to the humble. And then sickness of the emotions and, and our psyche, if you like, is um, often caused by original sin, the sin of others, where evil was done to you, and in your struggle with that, um, you became sick. It, it's like... Uh, 
yeah, my classic experience there some years ago, um, just after we planted Fountain Bend, uh, there, there was another church down the road that had also planted just before us, and I was asked to, to intervene and mediate in a conflict in their leadership. And I was still, I was in my 20s. I mean, we planted this church and I was in my 20s, you know, so what do I know? Anyway, I get in there like a sheriff to manage this thing. And I mismanaged the emotions involved in the mediation, such that I gave myself a duodenal ulcer. I internalized all the, the tensions that were going on. I'd never seen that stuff before, but I got so sucked into it. And then, uh, then I realized that I, it, it, I, I got physically sick from an emotional issue. And um, I needed my mind to be changed, but I also needed God to heal my body. And he took me on a couple of things, but one of them was a milk fast. He led me to just drink milk for 10 days and meditate and wait on him, and, and I was healed. It's a wonderful thing. But I did get a life lesson out of that. Manage your soul. Soul care is very important. So we need to be thinking about that. And of course, sickness of the body flows along similar lines. But, and it's caused by diseases and accidents and psychological stress. Things can actually make us physically sick. And uh, there, we, there we have prayer and medical care, both. Um, and I just want to say, for us, faith and medicine are not enemies. They're friends. The same God who gives us faith also gives us the wisdom to create medi medication, and we can use it. And even if it is for a, a psycho issue, um, I want to say to you, because uh, we have some taboos that still fly around these days. Um, unless you clearly have a word from the Lord not to medicate, I would say go for it. Does that, I don't know if that uh, is offensive to some, but there's really no problem, no clash in my mind at all about that. And then what about if, it is, if it's demonic? Uh, how do we deal with deliverance? Okay, just to say very quickly, there are three things that help us understand deliverance. You can, you can take the Pentecostal approach to the demonic and name it and cast it out. Uh, just like, hey, if um, your kitchen is, is infested with cockroaches, you can shout at them and they will leave because they're smaller than you. <laughs> okay. Or you, can, or, you can, um, or you can turn on the lights and they will scatter because they like darkness, right? So that's the, the Baptist or evangelical approach to deliverance. You can teach. You can turn on the lights. Turn, teach about forgiveness. Teach about bringing things in order that would out of order. Huh? Uh, and as you study the Enneagram, for example, it's another way of turning on the lights. And the demonic that's been lurking there in the broken places of your historic life uh, are, are cast out because of the light that's come in. You start to do life differently. If you teach on, on good money management, which we've done, because in Fountain Vineyard, one of our elements of our vision is that everyone who joins our church would be set free from debt and live on a cash basis in two or three years. That's our, our continuous aim. And so in order to help that happen, we teach on money management and running balance systems and debt reduction and things like that. So when we're teaching those things, we're casting out the demonic that has accompanied financial mismanagement. Eh? Even the fear of scarcity. Wish we had time to talk about that. Maybe if we have Christians, I can tell you one or two things about that. That's been very helpful to us. But um, So the second thing is you can, you can turn on the lights. Or third way, you can get rid of the demonic. So you've got the Pentecostal approach. You've got the evangelical approach. You can shout at the, at the demons. You can teach on the alternative to what's being practiced by the demonic. And thirdly, you can clean the kitchen. <laughs> get, destroy the habitat. This is what you'll call the, as the, the pastoral approach. Deal with the root issues out of which the brokenness is emanating. That's feeding the, the, the negativity and the destruction. Huh? When you teach on forgiveness, for example, and, and you get down to the root issues and you invite these people, the broken person, 
to forgive the the one who has uh, has has, has uh, injured them, um, they're cleaning out the habitat of evil. A friend of mine, Anglican priest, uh, Laurie. Some of you might know Laurie Wilmot from. Anybody know Laurie Wilmot? Yeah, yeah. Laurie and Isabel tragically, twenty some years ago, had their son and daughter killed. You might remember the story. And uh, Laurie, uh, they, they were, I think, nineteen and twenty or something like that, uh, years of age, and, and beautiful young people were, were murdered. Um, and uh, within hours of the event, Laurie went public and declared his forgiveness of the perpetrators. And, and he got a lot of bad press for that. People said, how can you do that? That's cheapening what they've done, cheapening forgiveness. It's not right to forgive. And, and Laurie said, I didn't do it for his sake. I did it for mine. And uh, I had him share the other day at a fraternal I was running, and, uh, and, and, and he told the story again. And he said, you know, I... I forgave because it's the only way to stay healthy. I wasn't going to let that, that perpetrator have any abuse on my soul as well. And he divorced himself from engagement with any level of, of recompense. Leave that to God. Wow, eh? I mean, that's, that's quite something. Took a lot of grace. A lot of grace. Uh, yeah. Um, so you've got the three ways of deliverance, and uh, you can work that out as its application in your church life as you do. Because here's the thing that's going to help that happen. Your, your community life, your life together, is going to help you work out your stuff a whole lot more than living in isolation. Huh? Does this make sense, guys? Yeah. All right, so we've covered a, an array of subjects, and uh, we want to open it up for some questions, if, especially if there's... You know, have you ever, have you been itchy on one side and somebody's scratching the other side? You want, can we just scratch where you itch? Eh? So where do you itch? What are the questions you might be thinking about? Maybe I could just say in Fountain, we, Fountain Venue, we have a policy. If anybody asks a question, we know they're asking on behalf of their neighbor. So there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> all, all questions can come. <coughs> Any questions at all? I've answered them, eh? Good, 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 good. Did you catch, can I highlight one or two things, and maybe it provokes a question. Did you catch the centrality of transparency? If you're going to do church as community, you've got to be willing to be transparent. There's got to be a level of trusting, openness, um, and obviously, with appropriate confidentialities. So we're not talking about everybody knowing every detail of people's lives where things have been confessed and dealt with confidentially. And by the way, it's interesting to me that the, and the Catholics love to remind us of this, that there are far fewer Catholics than Protestants, uh, far fewer Catholics than Protestants in mental institutions across Europe. And they put this, they ascribe this to the practice of confession. And if you do church as community, you will be practicing confession. Because that's what our home cells, or what do you guys call them? Home groups, house churches. That's what you do there. You sit together and you become priests one to another. You hear confession. But hey, those need to be appropriately held in confidentiality. This you become abusers one of another. And you, and you trade all kinds of rumoring. Hey? Does that make sense? Sir? But transparency is very important. You've got to kick those windows in and create space for more free living.
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. The Quest for the Radical Middle. That's a very good book, by the way, Bill Jackson. Eh? You guys should read that if you have. How many have read that? Bill Jackson, Quest for the Radical Middle. Eh? Good, good read. It just the title says it all. The vineyard is passionate about finding that, 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 that road between the polemics of extremes on many, many things. We talked a little bit about that earlier uh, as we navigate through some difficult scenarios um, on, on many issues. Um, you know, we've got to learn to love truth more than our own opinion for a start. Um, and therefore, say, teach what I was saying to pubs and others just now. That that's one of the reasons I joined the vineyard. I, I love the... There were, there were two or three reasons, but one of them was I love the, the intellectual honesty in the vineyard. And, and I found a place in the, amongst the vineyard friends where you were allowed to think and your faith was allowed to think. You could, have, you could love God intelligently. I appreciated that. <clears throat> and, uh, um, and the Quest for Radical Middle helps us to express another very good book along the lines with Rich Nathan right, talks about both and, the title of his book, Reaching for a Similar Thing. So, yeah. We could applicate that to many, many scenarios. Yeah. Let's fix something. I think there's a brokenness in our society with the excessive use of social media where uh, what we call Facebook friends are not actually friends at all. Hey? <sighs> should give it another name. It's not really friends. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Stalkers, yeah, and it's so open to abuse, and yeah, yeah. God help us, and um, praise God, more and more people, sane people are rising up and, and running seminars, enlightening others about how to tame this beast that has ruined so many lives. Eh? At the very least, it superficialized what we call friendship, at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. That's why the tenses of salvation, all that plays into that. Um, we are saved, but we're still being saved, and we will be saved. Um, and the kingdom is all of those simultaneously. That's the amazing thing about it. And, and we have, we have a, a, a wonderful mandate and empowerment to actually to speak the kingdom and to de declare it. And, I, you know, how many of you have had exposure to, to, to Bethel in Reading, California? And Bill Johnson, what a great, and, and he, what a great ministry. And we've been blessed by them. And, and he by the vineyard. And he, he claims John Wimber is one of his mentors. Um, and, I mean, Bill has shared so many amazing things. We love that. And when their teams come out to us, because they do lean uh, to the other side, to the side of what we would call post-millennialism, where uh, much more of what we would consider still to come, is being realized now. So they live much more in a realized eschatology than what we would find that place of the radical middle. So uh, the problem is, as I see it, I'm just being honest here about my journey with the Bethel situation, is that um, as I asked one of their team leaders not so long ago, when somebody's not healed, how do you answer their questions? And they say, we don't. We don't know how, so we don't. And I don't know that that's really helpful. At least it's more honest to say, I don't know, than to blame it on sin or inadequate faith or something like that. When actually, how many of you ever prayed for something and it didn't happen yet? Eh? Has that ever happened to any of you? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? And, and so some things are like Paul's thorn 
you know, three times, and yet God's going to just somehow use it to show that His grace is still sufficient, and He will take you through. Um, and so it does help us to live with uh, the, the tension of the kingdom as far as answered prayer is concerned. It's very helpful to us, you know. Can I just correct something, though? Bethel has had so much abuse thrown. It's, can I just say something accolading them on their behalf? Most of the rumors about Bethel that I've ever come across have absolutely no foundation in truth. They've been maligned, like Wimber was maligned in those early years too. Maligned and castigated and criticized, uh, rumored uh, atrociously. And it's, it's quite horrific how Christian brothers and sisters can take others and just pull them in the mud in the name of, I don't know what, you know. Come on. It doesn't make sense. So I, I bless God for Bethel and what they carry and what they bring to us. They're refreshing. And especially this one of the four pillars of Bethel is, is the goodness of God. Eh? That's the number one pillar. They, say that they start with the goodness of God is for us, the favor of God. I think we've got to rediscover that. I mean, didn't John the Baptist start his ministry? Jesus started his ministry also saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The favor of God is breaking out upon you. This is good news, you know. Uh, that's, that's something to be celebrated, eh? Be therefore holy or perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Interestingly, the word he uses there is described as, as wholeness rather than a, a moral holiness. Think about it. When you're whole and secure in God, your moral life will normally straighten up as well. So it's much more about the internal relating to God than religiously trying to put things together. And secondly, it does help us to remember that this is a journey we're on. Even Paul said, I don't claim to have achieved or arrived at this one thing I do. I press on that I may lay hold of all of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. He laid hold of me that the fullness of the new humanity could be manifest in my life. I want that full new humanity. So we, we're still getting there. Huh? We, we're pressing into it. So it's an ongoing journey. Um, but that's where community helps us because, hey, we, we're able to reflect it to each other. And, and iron can sharpen iron, huh? Um, in, in the context of trusted relationships. Eh? Sometimes we don't really want to learn, eh? uh, but God's got ways and means. Eh? Ways and means. He's got ways and means. I remember Colleen saying to me after 25 years of marriage, she says, Dave, strikes me, I don't think you even know me. So I think, wow, we've been together all these years. What don't I know? What have you done? <laughs> and she said, no, I'm not going to tell you. You just don't know me. It's for you to find out. So I thought, okay, all right. And so I'm thinking, she thinks that I am unromantic. I'll show her. <laughs> yeah. So I planned this. I planned this thing. I'm going to surprise her. I book a place in a game lodge. We're going to go away for a night or two, and we're going to do this thing. And I arranged the whole thing. And she was out on a shopping expo. When she comes back, I, 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 I knew she was going to put it in my car. And off. I was going to drive off. So I'm just going for a drive. And we'd go off. And it would be so romantic. I mean, in my mind, that's romantic. Huh? <laughs> anyway, but I go to the bedroom. And I realize, look, I better pack some clothes. We're going to be gone for two days or something. So I get to her cupboard. I open the cupboard. And I take one look. And I realize, I don't have a clue what goes with what. I just check all these shelves, and I think, I don't know what goes with what. I don't know what she wears. So 
I think, no, I'm not going to let it catch me out on this one. So I'm going to get the biggest suitcase I can find. <laughs> and I load all six drawers. <laughs> I'm going to give her options. <laughs> anyway. She, when we got to the lodge, I mean, she just laughed and laughed. I mean, I, she could have stayed there for six months, you know, and never washed a thing. <laughs> anyway, so I, I learned in a rather humorous way that she was absolutely right, and I needed to reawaken my, my romantic side, which I'm still learning to do. So, so we're all on a journey, eh? Hey? Mm. Yes, my... I'm going to sit back down, though. Um, my question around vulnerability. Uh, I think as a community, that's something that we've talked about a few weeks ago when we were in groups about ways to connect and community. And I'm just curious as a person with experience in the church for a long time, um, what are ways that you, creative ways other than just uh, home groups that, uh, that you foster vulnerability in, in relationships with people who may have been going to church next to each other for years, but may not really know anything about the person sitting next to them. I was telling the leaders, one of my, one of my fears is that I would one day find myself behind the pulpit with nothing but my speedo on. <laughs> and I said, it's probably not me for the people. I don't know. <laughs> but it's that sense of overplayed vulnerability, you know, the sense of overshare. Uh, yeah. I think it takes, uh, it takes courageous leadership to lead into vulnerability because people catch what the leaders are. So if leaders model it, people will catch it. And the best way leaders can model it is narratively, in their own stories. Uh, talking about their own stories and, and unpacking that in, in transparent ways. So we've been training all these preachers over the last two, three years in Fountain. And what we train them in is narrative preaching which finds explanation in some proposition, but it starts narratively. What's your story? Where have you itched? Where have you been broken? Where have you needed God's help? And, 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 then, and then it leans into what does the word say about those things? So you start with narrative and you land on proposition. I do the same thing with the, there's a huge 200 and something pastors fraternal MPE of every denomination that we've been leading for about 30 years, myself and two other guys. And, um, and we've had, we have a recipe in that. We have a 20-minute talk in the hour and a half of this breakfast meeting. And, uh, and we, we screen the guy who speaks, uh, the, or the woman who speaks. And, and we only have people share who are willing to speak with vulnerability. Because you can't believe how many pastors can stand up and give you 50 points on this and 30 points on that. But actually, when it comes to exposing uh, their actual life journey. Uh, so what, the question I classically ask, and this is what you could think about as a gateway to vulnerabilities, where have you failed? What mistakes have you made? Where have you ever been hurt? What questions have you never found answers for? These are the kind of things that, that lean us into exposing our humanity that invite others to complete what we have only just begun to find. And of course, where we have failed, um, we find grace. Uh, that's the place that we, we've, God meets us. He gives his grace to the humble. And then, uh, we, then that becomes a great positive testament. It starts in the place of neediness and vulnerability. Uh, and by the way, another good thing you can do is listen to Brene Brown uh, on vulnerability. A little 18, 15 or 18 minute TED talk. Do yourself a favor. Do that on your quiet time. Listen to Brene Brown and vulnerability. And then read her books. Eh? 
great books by Brene um, that really encourage healthy vulnerability. Um, watch out just for one trap, though. Watch out for, for, for throwing pity parties. Vulnerability, don't equate it with pity. And I'm telling you now, a, a pity party is a very tiring thing. Uh, many churches have, um, let me just say, we're very draining people, VDPs, eh? We've more kindly called them EGRs, extra grace required people. <laughs> but, uh, and, and you know somebody's an EGR, but when you finish having a session with them, you are absolutely drained. Why? Because they come to you with a victim mentality, and they want you to fix Humpty Dumpty. And all the king's horses and men cannot put Humpty, they've got to own their own Humpty challenge. And so we, we've learned to counsel and to minister with the application of homework. I will not see someone without giving them homework. And I will not see them again until they've done their homework. Because otherwise, I'm, having, I'm working harder on their healing than they're going to work on their own. And that will never fix uh, a broken life. Eh? I'll tell you what, they'll be so addicted to your counsel, they'll come back to you every week for 52 weeks. Do you want that? Exactly. So... True vulnerability mustn't take you down the road of invitation to pity party. Self-pity is very destructive. So when you share your story, it's in order to land on grace, land on, on resolution, land on hope. And remember, at the end of the day, pubs, when you, someone asks you, who do you work for? My classic answer is, I work for the big three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are you trading? I trade in hope. That's the commodity. Think about it. That's what the church's business is. We are the carriers of hope. As Bill Hubble said, the, 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 local ch the local church, when it's operating right, is the hope of the world. That's what we carry. And that hope is especially seen in our vulnerable times. Eh? Any more questions? Yes, Trevor. Um, there's wonderful people like Gail and others who, whenever you ask, have you heard of this person, she puts her hand up. But there's also some of us in the congregation who have not been here since before Jesus was here. And uh, so I just wondered if maybe you could just, you know, if there's things that you feel like really would be great for a body to hear about the vineyard um, that would help us to connect more, that would be great. Uh, we're, 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 we're taking up the challenge, the invitation from the Lord to, uh, to move from being from move beyond being a network to being a movement again, the thing we're we're birthed by God for, and think about it, and that's one of the reasons I joined the vineyard. John Wimber, uh, I said to him, John, look, I don't want to get into a denominational thing, um, but I do see how God, and he helped me to understand this even more, how God has used movements throughout church history. So I want to sign up for the movement, um, and then it seems like for various reasons, maybe pressure of life whatever, uh, we, we, we began to just become a network. And now with the application of what we call the three Gs, giving, going, and growing, we're, we're rediscovering the adventure of being a movement again. So that's what's happening for us right now. All over the place we have uh, movement opportunities. You, some of you, you guys know you have the word Bloemfontein coming up from time to time, the teams going out there, and a few other cities that we're targeting. We're preparing to do a big target up here in Bella Bella, um, Mossel Bay. These ones that I know of, Mossel Bay, uh, East London. Uh, we're doing a plant outside PE as well in Cape Flats, uh, in, in the Cape Town area. Um, 
And I think there's some others that are also considering a few other places down in KZN as well. Um, so we're becoming a movement again. Um, and just the other thing, just to let you know, uh, that we have expanded the leadership um, to bring a lot more legs on the field. I feel a little bit like uh, like uh, uh, Rossi did with the Springboks when we were trying to come out of our doldrums. He expanded the, the training camp. He brought about 60-something guys onto the into the loop so that he could explore fresh options. So we've moved our leadership from like 12 or 16 up to about 38 people right now. There's a lot of fresh legs coming in, and we're inviting new some of them in their 20s and 30s because, hey, let's remind ourselves. That's how we were when we got this thing going, and they get go. So let's go back to risking it. On, on the younger generations. It's wonderful. I mean, I'm asking all the sages in the movement, like Alexander and Costa Mitchell and Derek Morphy and them, we call them our sages, uh, the, the sages and the older generations to take up the mantle and the call to, to father the others. And, and like I say, if you're fathering, then you want your sons and daughters to rise up in success and, and fruitfulness. So that's very much what we're on about at the moment. So that's why we've also uh, opened up Nexa, just so as to explain that, uh, we've, we've split it up again to Mpomalanga, Vindit North, Nexa, Trevor. I thought you guys all knew about Nexa. Northeast Central South Africa was the name given for this whole region that you guys were part of, believe it or not, for a number of years. Um, now we've disbanded that and split it into three because somehow you've got to, you've got to go smaller to go bigger. And that's been also part of my thinking is to, to give it away more. It's like, you know, I've got, Colleen and I've got four kids. In order to, for them to have a fruitful life and to us to grow more, I need to let them go out of my house. And they've all married and now they've brought us nine grandchildren so far. And it's, I ordered a dozen, by the way, so they're still, they're still counting, so figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they needed to go away in order to, to expand this thing. So it's likewise with the church. I think you've got to go smaller uh, in order to go bigger. That's what we're busy doing, huh? So we're doing a lot of things that give opportunity for exposure um, for the, the going. And I'm asking every single – and by the way, this year, I've, uh, uh, we are, we're putting it out there, already told some of the leaders, but we, we want to make a, a very strong recommendation that every single vineyard leader and, if at all possible, member reads the book by Alan Scott called Scattered Servants. Have you heard about that book? Make a note of it. Sell your shirt to buy it. Get it on Kindle if you like. Scattered Servants by Alan Scott. He led a, a really great vineyard up in Northern Ireland, and now he's leading the Anaheim Vineyard, which is Wimber's, one of his original vineyards in, California, in, in L.A., California. And, um, and Alan, uh, his brother's actually going to come. John Scott is coming out to be with us at our conference in September in Cape Town. Um, so we're looking forward to that as well. Along with, just for those who might know the name, Ken Fish and Blaine Cook. We're hoping Blaine will come. Uh, that'll be, and Brian Blunt will be around too. He'll be with us at that time. So the conference is going to be in Cape Town in the September school holiday. And um, it's going to be preceded by a three-day outreach into the Cape. So come a few days early and help us reach out into the Cape. Uh, some of the church plants and things that are happening in the Cape. And then the conference runs the Thursday night to the Sunday, Sunday night. Sunday we're going to be in all the churches in the Cape, split up into multiple teams to, to do that. Um, so we've got teams going out all over the place. It's very quite exciting, actually. Got a good team going up to uh, Scandinavia, to, to Sweden, to the Nordic Summer Camp, where we're helping to minister there as well in Ju um, July. 
oh, by the way, in June, I am taking it. I'm supposed to be having a sabbatical this year, so I've taken the three weeks of safari into Botswana. How's that, eh? Eat your hearts out. <laughs> a couple of friends, we're going with, uh, up into the Chobi and the Caprivi. But um, I, I just, I think for me, it's as refreshing as sitting around the campfire with a good steak, eh? Some good friends, so nothing wrong with that, eh? <laughs> anyway, um, what else can I tell you about the movement? Uh, so we, we've got these regions, and there are fresh uh, leadership uh, guys emerging, and uh, it's, it's really quite, quite exciting, actually. Hey? If you want to get involved in any of that, please contact us. We, we're also running, um, amongst other things, um, a 10-day intensive uh, in... We, this is one's going to be 29th of, June, uh, of May till 7th of June, um, where we take 10 days and we, and we do probably about six months worth of pastoral training in a 10-day focused time. This last year we ran our first one. We had guys, because uh, I'm also involved in mission work at the vineyard, uh, right up, up, up as far as Egypt, actually, it's right the whole continent. So we've got teams and conferences happening this year in Kigali and Abidjan in the uh, Ivory Coast. And so we've got people coming down from these places as well as all over South Africa for a 10-day focused training time. Not everybody can get away for long, like six months, but come for 10 days, and it's quite intense. So there's lots of things happening to help stimulate the movement again. Hey? Okay. Any more last few questions before we wrap it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Matt and uh, Shawnee Osborne um, are running a focus group on worship. So we've got about 12 or 13 focus groups emerging on different things. So that's getting some airtime at the conference coming up. And these people are, are developing teams that are working around that. Matt and Shawnee are doing a really good job of connecting with worship people nationwide. So they're the ones to, con to contact if you like some encouragement and training in worship as you know, they just come from a weekend they did this in the cape for all the cape churches so no reason why they can't come to you guys as well that's the, and a lot of them are writing their own songs my son caleb leads a church called signal in cape town in the woodstock area and uh, they went through a period where they didn't want to um uh, sing any secondhand songs they, the lord got them to sing only songs that they'd written themselves so and there's quite a revival of, of that kind of innovation Listen, I know you guys have got to go, go to bed at nine before you turn into pumpkins or something. What is that? <laughs> it's great being with you, hey? And uh, I, salute, I salute this church. There, there are a lot of very healthy things about your life together. And I want to just say, may God give you patience to wait on his timing. And Galatians 6 verse 9 is a great verse for you. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. I believe it's a word of the Lord for you in this, in this time and going forward. There is a time of great reaping. You're busy sowing, you're developing. And if the, if the harvest tarries, if the vision tarries, wait for it. It is yet for that appointed time. And in the waiting, there's a preparation taking place. If you hurry it, my wife's a midwife and a, and a doula. If you hurry the birth, you'll do damage to the baby. Don't hurry what God wants to birth amongst you. Let him bring it in his time. But let him bring you to fullness that all that he wants you to be ready for, you can say yes to. Amen. Bless you, pubs. Bless you, Philly. It's great to have you guys.